I know that I'm getting older, not just because of the uh, children who have, <laughs> who have walked around the synagogue and now they're becoming bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. I'm doing their weddings. I'm doing the baby namings of their kids. And uh, not only because I have gray hair, uh, but also I realize that I'm becoming older is because I like movies that are older more than I like new movies. And so I want to reflect on perhaps one of my most favorite movies. And the truth of the matter is, I cherish it now, every once in a while when it appears on the screen, on TV, more than I think I did when the first few times I saw it. I, for, for, I saw it first as a play, and then of course it became on the screen and such. It's Fiddler on the Roof. And Fiddler on the Roof, the movie itself, has a phenomenally interesting story uh, involving Norman Jewison that I will not go into this morning. Um, however, there's one scene from Fiddler on the Roof amongst many beautiful scenes that I'd like to point out. And what I want to share with you, of course, is that the scene where Tevye is approached by the sheriff, the chief police officer of the area where they live in Russia. And he pulls Tevye aside at night and he says to him, I want to give you a heads up. And the heads up that I want to give you is that in a few days' time, there's going to be a pogrom against the Anatevka and the Jews who live there. So he says to him, between me and you, prepare yourself. Pack your bags and take your family to safety. Devi turns around and obviously he is bewildered and angry. He wonders why the police chief, while having the ability to warn him, seemingly doesn't have the ability or the will to stop it. And as Tevye walks away, he looks in the clear night sky and he speaks to God saying, I know that we're the chosen people, but couldn't you choose someone else every once in a while? Of course, it's a reflection upon when bad things happen to us, which is exactly, if I could say to you, which is a bit of the subject of the Torah portion, Avery, that you chanted for us so beautifully on this morning. It is the idea that of how bad things happen. Now, on one hand, there's two answers to the question. There's the question of free will, which explains when people do bad things against other people. It's, free will is about the poor choices that people make, people deciding to say a hurtful word, or to do something hurtful to another person, to do something illegal, to do something summarily they know that will cause harm either to the people they love or people they don't know. But nonetheless, it's a choice that we make. But free will in and of itself doesn't explain all the bad things that happen to us. Because free will doesn't explain why earthquakes happen. And free will doesn't explain why there are floods or hurricanes. Free will doesn't explain why there are people who were born with genetic abnormalities. And free will doesn't explain why people contract diseases and pass away. So how do we understand to coin or use the favorite, famous term, excuse me, of how do we understand when bad things happen to people? Because free will doesn't explain those things. At the heart of the matter, the Torah portion for this morning addresses and looks to deal with that. 
And part of the thing, when you look at the Torah portion, is that it looks at the bad things that happen to people as a series of punishments for things that people do wrong. In fact, you need only look as far as last week and the terrible events in Israel where 45 innocent people passed away in the city of Meron, up north in Israel. They were attending a Lagba Omer, uh, excuse me, not a, not a Lagba Omer thing. Excuse, yeah, it was a Lagba Omer thing in honor of Shimon Bar Yochai. They light barn fires, it's a whole thing going on. And it was a terrible, terrible thing that happened. And immediately in the aftermath of that, there are some religious leaders who stood up and they try to explain why the bad thing happens as a punishment. That these people must have obviously done something wrong. Because why else would something bad have happened to them? And this, of course, line of thinking where you see bad things as being a punishment is really the outgrowth of humans wanting to understand and explain things. But it easily reaches the absurd very quickly. There were young children who passed away. How do you explain that? How could they be guilty of anything? If you take that methodology and extend it a little bit further, you look at the broad scope and scape of human history, you look at the Shoah, the Holocaust, and how could any of that have been a punishment? That's not the kind of God we believe in. Or Arthur, Arthur Hertzberg, the famous rabbi, once commented, he's a theologian as well, he said, if you believe that, then the God that you, don't, that you believe in is not the God that I believe in. So what I'd like to do in trying to shape the discussion of understanding of not only Avery's Torah portion, but also by extension of trying to understand what it means and how religion can look at bad things that happen to us. How do we understand these things? I want to engage the discussion with you by focusing on, I have a little Hebrew lesson today, two Hebrew words, okay? And you're going to be tested at the end. So pay attention. Two Hebrew words. You ready? The first Hebrew word is ech. Ech. The second Hebrew word, for sure you know, is lama. Now ech, the Hebrew word ech, generally is translated as how. Ech zekareh, how does this happen? Right? The word ech is about howness, how something happens. Lama is generally translated as being? Say it louder. Thank you. <laughs> lama, from the earliest of ages, we're taught lama means why. But here's the funny thing about translations. Anybody who has even a passing familiarity with another language, you don't have to be profoundly proficient in it, but if you have a little bit of proficiency in a second language, you understand one thing right away. There is no such thing as an intelligible, literal translation. No such thing. And fundamentally, what you begin to understand is that every act of interpretation, every act of, excuse me, every act of translation is an act of interpretation. Because you can't, by word by word, give an intelligible translation from something in one language to another. You have to filter it out. You got to give it a little bit of poetry, a little bit of music, so that it's intelligible. The word ech and the word lama are the perfect examples for this. When people say ech, 
they're asking, how could something have happened? How could this have happened? Now, in English, when we use the word why, what are we asking? We're asking the very same thing. When someone says, why did this happen to me or him or her or them or us? What are we saying exactly? When we say, why did this happen? We're actually saying, how could this have happened to me? So then what does the word lama mean? It doesn't mean ech. It doesn't mean how or really why. You got to break the word up. The word lama is a contraction of two Hebrew words, le and ma, translated as English as to what? To what? It's not how. How did this happen to me? It's not why. Why did this happen to me? Why is this going on? How did this unfold in my life? How did these bad things happen? Why is this falling on top of me. It is asking lima to what? One of the great frames that religion can provide to us as we face difficult moments in our life is that it tries to, I think, in some way remove from us the need for us to search for explanations all the time. The fact of the matter is, is that while humans perhaps don't like living with riddles, the reality is, is that we live with riddles all the time and there are many things that we exist with in this world that we don't have explanations for. We summarily do not understand why everything happens the way that it does and yet we still manage to live just fine. When we say the ma to what, what are we actually saying? What we're actually saying is that the thing that humans can do in the face of difficult moments, the best thing that humans can do is not to ask how or why this happened, but it's to ask, what do I do now? What kind of person will I be? What will I offer in response to these difficult moments? What will I ask of myself to overcome it? The most inspiring, the most inspiring and heroic moments in human life are never found in people who give answers as to why bad things happen in this world. The most inspiring and heroic moments in human life are people who show us what they do when they face those moments. And that, I believe, is religion's great and abiding message to human life. For myself personally, I have found that to be the truth over and over again. It is why as a very young man, Avery, I was just a little bit younger than you, when I walked into a synagogue with my parents and I looked at the rabbi and I said to my mother, I was like eight years old, and I said, I want to do that for a living. <laughs> it was in part because I, as I lived my life, I began to understand that while we can't change the things that happen to us, we can, in fact, change the people that we are in the face of things that happen to us. And so I want to conclude with a bit of a story. And the story goes like this. It's from Herbert Wiener's book called Nine and a Half Mystics. If you haven't read it, it's a great book to read. It's about 30, 35 years old. But Herbert Wiener was a reformed rabbi who went on becoming a, a bit of an iconic personality. And he goes in search of modern-day mystics. And he has an interview with now deceased, but great philosopher, writer, I guess perhaps a mystic. His name was Martin Buber. 
And he asked the question of Buber, what was the most important moment in his life? And Buber tells him like this. In the early 1960s, and he lived in Jerusalem, in the early 1960s, he was in the midst of writing and his academic career and all those other things. And late at night, maybe 9 or 10 o'clock, there's a bell that rings on his door. And on the intercom, it was one of his students who he knew was a troubled young man. And he said, Dr. Buber, I have to come talk to you. I'm in a terrible moment. I'm suffering, blah, blah, blah. And Buber says to him, you know what? Now's at the time. My family is going to bed. I have writing to do. I have letters to respond to. They didn't have email back then. Right? I have lots of stuff to do. Call me in the morning. And he closes the intercom off. The next day, Buber heard that the young man took his life. And Buber said from that moment on, he never, ever turned away when someone said, I need a moment of your time. I have to talk to you. In life, the greatest answer we have to the things that face us is not to ask why or how, but what will I do? What will I do?